the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join us each week as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. I'm Kayla Fratt, and today Ursa and I are thrilled to be speaking to Ken Ramirez about conservation training and detection dogs. Ken is the Executive Vice President and Chief Training Officer of Karen Pryor Clicker Training. He has 40 plus years of experience working with a dizzying array of species um, and their trainers, ranging from search and rescue dogs to butterflies and sea lions to guide dogs. Ken has also written for numerous scientific publications and authored countless popular articles, as well as a fabulous book called Eye of the Trainer. And he's clearly dedicated to further the field of animal behavior. So welcome to the podcast, Ken. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to chatting with both of you. Yeah, One thank you. thing that I wanted to mention is whenever I talk to um, like a layperson about you, Ken, um, I'll be like, oh, this he's so cool. Like he's one of the people I've looked up to throughout my whole career. And he does this conservation stuff and, and dog training and all these other animals. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's great. And then I'm like, and he trained butterflies. And that's always the thing that makes people go, what? 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 Tell me more about this. <laughs> it, it, it is amazing to me too. I mean, uh, when I when I think about all the things that I've done, I talk to colleagues, I talk to others in the field, I talk to anybody, and they're always asking about the butterfly experience that I had. And, and I, even for myself, I, I, I find it an amazing project, but really in the big scheme of things, it was very, uh, an insignificant project and it was very simple training. It's just the fact that since most people have never thought of training butterflies, that just seems to blow people's <laughs> mind. But it, it, it really, we taught them to move from one side of a football stadium to the other side of a football stadium on cue. And I always tell people that's no different than teaching your dog to come. And you realize, you know, they go from one place to the other and you go, well, that was easy. Uh, that's all it was. But it's because it was butterflies that makes it such a remarkable story. I mean, I still story. have clients that don't believe that you can train cats. So when you say, like, there's no way, there's no way you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and there's, there's, there's dozens of species out there that people work with regularly that they that many people assume are not trainable until right. you until you realize yeah, you can train exactly. anything. <laughs> cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as a, as a super friendly reminder, before we get going, um, you can also support the podcast through Patreon for as little as three bucks a month. If you support at the higher level of 10 bucks a month, then you get to submit questions to our guests, which is how people got questions into Ken today. Um, so make sure you check that out. If you're interested in joining the conversation, that's at patreon.com slash canine convos. So our plan today is a little bit unusual for us, but we hope that you guys enjoy it. We're going to spend the first half of the episode highlighting the power of training outside of just our dogs. Um, we're asking Ken to share some stories about using effective training to aid in conservation biology. Um, and then the second half of the episode, we're going to focus a little bit more on some scent detection, working dogs, um, and how to work with them. And then we'll wrap up with questions from our patrons. So... Um, Ken, I know that we already uh, hinted that this is going to be a challenging question for you, but do you have any favorite or lesser known um, conservation stories that you wanted to start off with right away? Well, you know, there, there are so many conservation projects. I think one of the hardest things for most people who are involved in conservation work is realizing that there's a lot of pre-planning time that goes into getting ready to work with conservation efforts. There are a lot of often government permits that are required. There are a lot, there's a lot of research that have to be done. And if you're going to start impacting the 
the the behavior of animals in the wild there are beyond the government institutions there are a lot of animal um animal protection groups a lot of biologists mm -hmm. a lot of others that have input have an interest in seeing it done right and so consequently um there are dozens and dozens of projects that i have been involved with that are at various still at various stages of development because there are still challenges to helping to see them go through um and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm always fascinated by that and 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 what's fascinating about all of the projects is they're all a little bit different you know from mm -hmm. from uh, uh protecting uh flightless birds in new zealand to uh chimpanzees in 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 africa to uh, uh the little animal called a bilby in australia to sea lions here in the united states to elephants in africa and each one is different and the goal for that conservation project is unique and different and so it it requires throwing the book out the window and starting all over again with each new conservation project and a lot of the less sexy projects the ones that people don't hear about are are local projects that are are making an attempt to protect elk that are that are coming into human conflict in in certain areas of the united states or certain species of birds that are going extinct because their their habitat is being destroyed and we need to find ways to sometimes help them find a safe place to be or a, a safe haven mm -hmm. to go to or or things like that and and some require just small efforts you know i i talk with the wildlife agents who who deal with it and once i give them suggestions of how to modify behavior they're able to run with that project on their own and able to implement some of those ideas so that it ends up not even being a project that i was actually hands-on involved with i just provided a little advice a few suggestions based on my experience and sometimes that's the way to start is because people just don't know where to begin and so but it's the where to begin ch changes depending upon the species and the problem on what is the beginning. problem that you want to solve <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah, definitely. And it, I mean, I think one of the things that I and, it, and I'm showing my hand a little bit as one of the questions that we wanted to ask, but it's fascinating how much of this really focuses on setting up the environment and antecedents um, to get to get our desired responses. So maybe we can highlight that through through one of our more specific stories. I know um, actually one that I remember is um, the seagull story. Um, and that that one seems like a good kind of Way a, a relatively easy way to highlight what I'm getting at here. Yes, it is. In fact, uh, I assume you're talking about the uh, a project that I did in Europe. It was I didn't really think of it as a conservation project, but it was a, a definitely a project in which a a park uh, in Europe was really concerned about the seagulls and that they had just attracted thousands and thousands of seagulls, and you know these 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 animals are pooping on people's heads and they're just, a, they became this nuisance for the park and it, it made the guest experience at this park very, very unpleasant. And I remember when I went to, to do this particular consult, I, I had all of these ideas of how it was going to be uh, fairly easy to to, to to change the seagull's behavior. The seagulls were really attracted to the park because they sold they sold popcorn at the park that was in this little conical 
container that like a cone that that guests would carry around and eat popcorn and the problem with the container is it it didn't have a flat bottom and so it was easy to spill and so there was constantly popcorn debris everywhere and that it just provided the seagulls all of this food and when i went into the project i thought well this will be easy i'll convince them to either stop selling popcorn or i'll convince them to re uh re-engineer their containers so that it isn't so easy to spill but all of those things cost money uh or, or it was costing the park money that they didn't want to spend and and I remember after the, my first meeting with the management team, I spent three hours going over 20 different ways that we could adjust the behavior from putting awnings over the walkway so they couldn't get to the food, having more staff there to sweep up, change, not, don't sell it anymore. If you got to sell it, you change the container. But every one of those ideas was shot down. And I remember... At the end of the meeting, I, uh, I, I went to the, the, the director of the park and said, you know, maybe I'm not the right person for this project. I, I think maybe you should, um, you know what, I'll, I'll, I won't take a fee. I, I, I think I'll just go home. I, I, and he's like, no, 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 we want you to be here. And I said, but you've, you've dis, you, you don't want to follow any of the plans that I have in place. And, and he looked at me and he says, but Ken, we heard you were this really wonderful trainer. We thought you would train the birds to go somewhere else. And uh, I remember walking away from that meeting going, what is he talking about? But then I realized in many ways he was right. You know, so often the problem trainers face everyday dog owners face it anybody who has a problem most people seek trainers out because they have a problem behavior and as the owner of the problem dog we always want to get rid of the problem behavior but as the consultant coming in i always suggest don't worry about getting rid of the behavior let's find an alternative behavior what do you want the dog to do instead and at first most clients are like i don't know what you mean um i just want them to quit jumping on me or i want them to quit biting me or whatever and and but when, once you create an alternative behavior and i remember sitting in my hotel room that first night kicking myself going well of course the guy is right i need to we need to figure out what we want the seagulls to do instead instead of asking the park to change their behavior and or the guests to change their behavior we want the seagulls to change their behavior and and this is why this project this story really does relate to conservation training because we're talking about free-ranging animals and figuring out a way to, uh, to to change the environment and ultimately the park had several restaurants that always had food debris and food waste and and i designed this program where we we would go out and each restaurant would take turns you know at, at, at different hours different restaurants it was their job to take their food debris and go take it to the other side of the lake there was a lake there and they owned the property on the other side of the lake but it was there was not there were no people there there was no buildings there there was nothing there to to disturb and i suggested you take your food garbage and you distribute it all around that lake area and if if we can for let's let's wait till the slower season of the uh, slower tourist season maybe we can discontinue selling popcorn just for like a couple of weeks while we get them used to the fact that this food will go to the other side. And I remember the manager going, oh, 
two weeks. You, I'll give you a month. <laughs> and I got all so generous of you. But I was pleased because, because then there were two things happening. We, we, we made the food unavailable at the time uh, with from the popcorn. We made really lots of food available at the other location. And mm -hmm. very, very quickly, the birds learned that was where the food was coming and they quit hanging out in the other area and then i put a plan in place for how to keep that up so that uh that it would uh that they would not get the problem back again and so that was an example of changing the environment changing where they could get their food from finding a way to prevent it to prevent it from being easy for them to get food in the place you don't want them and ultimately we managed to uh, train, I don't know how many birds it was. It was thousands and thousands and thousands of birds. Oh I, never, I never counted them, but they were, it was a major, huge number. And, uh, we were successful at that. Um, and I, I followed the park for, for a, about a year and a half afterwards, and they were able to maintain it. I, I have no idea what's gone on there since, but, uh, I do know they managed to keep the, the seagulls away. And uh, yet they were still safe and healthy and somewhere Success. else. <laughs> <laughs> one thing, yeah, one thing that I feel like yeah. is a recurring theme in, you know, the stories that you relate and, and the, you know, about your projects is balancing, you know, human needs and desires with animal needs and desires and welfare and whether that's domestic or wild animals. Um, you know, it seems like that's a really big challenge. It is. It is a big challenge. I mean, a lot of the conservation um, problems that we face in this world are caused by something that humans have done, whether it's from pollution or whether it's from overcrowding or whether it's from use of a particular environment. And so it's easy for someone who's really conservation focused mm -hmm. to say, oh, all those things don't matter. We're going to focus on the conservation issue. But you have to realize that the local people who are living in that area they have reasons that the things that they've done have happened and and there's no question that if we can pass laws and do things that have a lesser impact on the environment that would go a long way to help but usually by the time i'm called in that that option is is, is uh, the gates mm -hmm. open the left the barn on that mm -hmm. one it's too late they're already well into that and now we have a you know mo so many of the projects i'm involved with are are human animal conflict they're they're mm -hmm. they're occupying the same space and it's creating a problem it's creating a problem in whatever in whatever way it is and 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 it requires us to think about not only how can we help the animals survive how can we find a solution for them but you also have to ask how does that impact the people who live among those animals what changes are we asking them to make and you have to understand that oftentimes especially in some of the poorer countries um people's livelihoods depends on whatever it is they're doing in that area and asking them to change that means asking them to starve, asking them to go homeless, asking them, and you can't ask that. So while I would love to be able to go in and think animal-centric, here, here is the plan, mm -hmm. I realized that I really have to think broader than that and say, I'll think first about what's the best thing we can do for the animals, but then I have to ask, how is that impacting the people who live there? How is that mm -hmm. impacting their economy? How is that impacting their life? How easy is it gonna be for them to change? And anybody who's ever trained 
any animal, dogs, horses, anything. Um, when trying to solve a problem behavior with a, with a dog or anything, you always have to ask how easy is it going to be for a client who's not a trainer to understand and to be able to follow these guidelines and rules that you're putting in place. It's always possible to change behavior, but if your plan is too complex, too difficult, mm -hmm. too hard to do, often it's going to be difficult for a person who's not focused on training, who is not a trainer, to understand it. So you have to find ways of making it simple to do, easy to understand, that's not going to impact them too greatly. Yeah, it's amazing how those challenges that yeah, you face definitely. are mirrored sort of in microcosm with the challenges that we face, you know, as consultants working with our clients, it's the same thing. You know, we it's we've exactly got these conflicting the needs and desires on each side, and we have to figure out a way for everybody to get what they need and want. <laughs> and, 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 and it's often best to look at it that way. I mean, at, when you're look, talking about a conservation project, it can seem daunting because when you think about the problem you might have with a client, with a client, you're talking about a person or a couple or a family. <laughs> But when you're working with a conservation problem, you're talking about an entire city or an entire nation or an entire uh, 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 government agencies and locals and lots of different interests. Mm -hmm. and, and it just becomes more mm -hmm. complex because everybody's agenda, everybody's needs sometimes conflict with each other. And so that's where finding the right solution is important. I always tell trainers that are interested in conservation work, but the, the training part is pretty easy. I think as Bob Bailey <laughs> always says, the animals are the easy yeah. part, the real difficult part. And the thing that trips trainers up a lot is they have to be good negotiators. They have to be patient. They have to have good people skills because if you don't have good people skills, they're going to shut the door on you mm -hmm. right at the start. If you're not easy to work with, then you know you have to keep in mind that not everybody in that room cares as much about saving the animals mm -hmm. as you do. So consequently, you make it too difficult for them and they'll go, well, mm -hmm. then forget this. I'll, we'll just keep things mm -hmm. the way they are, or we'll just kill all the animals if they're not a conservation risk. You know, there's all <laughs> sorts of, you know, we forget that not everybody in the world sees animals and loves animals and cares about their conservation the way we do. And, and, and instead of getting indignant about it and upset with them for not caring, we just have to realize that they are coming at the problem from a mm -hmm. different place. And mm -hmm. they and we just have to, the more we can understand their point of view and why it matters to them, it, then it, then you can start finding solutions because you're understanding what's going to reinforce or impact the people involved as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I do find really interesting thinking about training wild animals or conservation training either way, um, and that is a little different from working with dogs, I think, is how heavily you want to, you tend to rely, rely on remote reinforcement, um, where, you know, it's totally fine for me to train um, a dog to not beg at the table by tossing food away from the table, um, you know, similar to what we're talking, what we talked about with the seagulls. Um, and they realize that I'm coming that, that it's coming from me, but I know we've got, you've got a couple really interesting stories, one with the, the chimps in Sierra Leone and the other with the oil spill otters, where a big part of the challenge was that you didn't want them to realize that the reinforcement was coming from people. Do you want to tell either one of those stories? Yeah, I think it's important to realize that, that a lot of conservation training is related <clears throat> to remote training and making it so that the animals 
aren't being affected by you or they don't know they're being affected by you both um there's all sorts of reasons for that but you just don't want wild animals to become dependent on people to search people out for reinforcers um i i think maybe the 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 best example of that is the project that i'm doing right now in africa um where we are working toward uh trying to uh reroute uh 400 plus elephants uh to take a new migration route uh, because we want to them to avoid a certain area where protection against poachers is very very difficult there's a serious poaching problem i'm, I'm gonna refrain from sharing country names because we we've come under um we we came under serious attack several years ago uh and i don't mean verbal attack i mean military attack uh and um and so i just the, the since this is an ongoing project, I'm, I'm not going to share details of exactly where this was taking place. But um, um, in an effort to divert the elephants to a new location, we needed to make it difficult for them to go the old route and easy to go the new route. But but we weren't we couldn't just walk up and say, here's some here's some food, follow me this direction. We needed the elephants right. to sort of make that decision on their own. And so one, we, we, we constructed these huge tree looking barriers that blocked the route that they normally take. And then the new route that we would, were hoping they would take, we used man-made water holes. The reason for their migration is that they're searching for water. So by putting these temporary small water holes, it, it, it led them in a direction. And we ended up putting lots of temporary water holes along the way to reinforce them. But again, it, it is a natural looking uh, route for them that, um, that that from their perspective there's no human connection to it we're watching in the distance but we are not actively doing reinforcers and the reinforcers that they are getting are things that they would naturally come across from time to time so that that the, the elephants make their own decision make the new choose the new route and our hope is over a 10-year period that they will start choosing the new route even without our help even without the extra water holes there and we're making that project uh, very gradually in 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 making the changes um and so often we are you know in the chimpanzee project that you asked about was in sierra leone in which we were trying to get uh again it was another poaching problem but in this particular case we weren't trying to get the chimps to go to a new area we found that when chimps scream they scream very loudly and when they all screamed in unison it was so loud that at first we hoped it would scare the poachers away but of course it didn't uh but what it <laughs> did do was it was loud enough that it was a natural alarm call that could be heard at the ranger station and the rangers could respond quickly to the to them and so we used a capturing technique of uh, when I, I say capture we didn't capture any animals we 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 captured behavior, we watched the chimps from a distance, but we constructed these automatic feeding devices, these PVC tubes that would shoot reinforcers into the trees. And whenever they would <laughs> scream, we would shoot these reinforcers into the, into the, uh, into the air and the animals were reinforced for screaming. In the first couple of weeks, we were so successful at that that they just screamed all the time. And our, 
our the park rangers were like, well, what have you done, Ken? I said, no, no, now we gotta now we gotta get him on cue. It's like when the owners say, I want to teach my dog to speak on cue, and it's like, are you sure you want to do that? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, be, sure, be, be careful what you wish for. But fortunately, the chimps learned very quickly, and and we needed our original idea was the cue would be when poachers approach, the animals scream. But we found that it was impossible to differentiate a poacher from a park ranger, from a tourist, from whatever. And so we just decided that any time a human approached, a Jeep approached, a, a, a bicycle, a, I mean, a motorcycle approached, any vehicle or any person that approached, that would cause them to scream. And it was amazing how quickly the animals learned that we would use you know, decoys and other things to get them to, to, to cue that. And then they began to realize, okay, we only scream when the, when a person approaches. And what was most significant about that is since that project's been long, long done, you know, the, 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 the poaching in that national park, just after two years of working on this project had decreased by 87%. And, and, and that's a real significant change. And, that's all we were doing. We allowed, the, we didn't change the environment except to provide reinforcers. And after the, the first two years of the project, because of civil war breaking out in Sierra Leone, we quit. We had to stop the project. But to this day, 20 plus years later, that particular troop of chimps still screams when people approach. They passed Amazing. it on to their offspring. They carried it on, even though we weren't still reinforcing it. Um, and so it was a really good example of not of, of making a, a temporary change in what was going on in their world, teaching them this new skill, and all of a sudden it's it's maintained for, for, for many, many years. But all of that's referred to as remote training. The majority of those chimps the only thing people ever were connected to that was as a cue to scream, as opposed mm -hmm. to giving them reinforcers. Those reinforcers appeared to just magically appear in the trees. Um, and, uh, and it was very effective in shaping and changing the chimps' behavior, which helped us in that conservation effort. Yeah, I, that's one of my favorite stories, I think. Um, but I, so I have a question um, as far as you know, getting a little nitty gritty about the the timing of these reinforcers. How did that um, that differed timing wise for the delivery of reinforcement versus, say, I have a dog hypothetically who barks when people come to the door, and I have a similar treatment plan, but the goal is to reduce barking. So, if you were trying to explain to someone um, how this differs and how a similar protocol resulted in increased screaming. Um, what are some what are some of the things you were thinking about there? Oh, no, absolutely. I think uh, when I when I deal with with barking dogs at a door, um, it's 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 not instead of reinforcing them for barking because that's not what you want unless that's what you're looking for. Uh, I always I always like to suggest that the knock at the door or the doorbell. Is, is you want to change that cue. And, and what I mean by that is change what behavior gets resulted from that cue. So I like to work with the doorbell and the door knocking as when that happens, if I run to my bed and lay down, I'm going to get reinforced. And, mm -hmm. uh, and very, very quickly, what ends up happening is uh, instead of the person coming to the door being an ex, ex it still get provides excitement for them but they get excited because they're going to get reinforced and and but not reinforced for barking and so mm -hmm. 
and of course I tend to work on that with decoys, you know, where it's, it's mm -hmm. me coming to the door and, and they learn to go and they, they learn a skill in a, in a situation that they wouldn't normally bark at. And then I transfer that gradually over to, to strangers that, that they can learn, uh, that it's the same thing that barking isn't what's going to get you reinforced. It's going to your bed and being quiet. That's going to get you reinforced. And it's, it's the same concept. It's just the behavior you're looking for is different. You're not looking for the barking. You're looking for going to your bed and being quiet. Um, and and animals learn that pretty quickly they, they quickly begin to make the connection oh this is how i get the attention i want part of it is also understanding what it is i mean a deeper level of training that is understanding what it is that causes the dog to bark is the dog barking out of fear is the dog barking out of excitement is the dog barking because he's looking forward to seeing the person that comes in uh kind of understanding the motivation behind the bark the the and so that the replacement behavior the, the going to your bed behavior the reinforcer that we offer can be something that is similar because it'll make the make the transfer of that of the behavior much faster. And so if you understand that it's fear, they, they need to start feeling a sense of protection. If it's excitement because they're going to get attention, then you need to provide them with that kind of attention. And you just need to sort of work with that a little bit. And that's one of the things that often requires an experienced trainer to help a client to understand because they, they just know he's barking and they, they haven't really given a lot of thought to the motivation behind the barking. Um, with the with the chimps, you're only reinforcing as they're actually screaming and potentially at uh, a specific volume or pitch. I know when people teach bark and holds, they try to reward the dog when the dog is barking most furiously or fastest or loudest or whatever it is versus, you know, I might do a cookie scatter to get my dog to be quiet, but I'm trying to time that not when he's right. barking his loudest. Right. I also just going off on a tangent and talking about training dogs barking and so forth when people are really insistent that they want to teach their dog to bark i always recommend that they teach two behaviors they teach a quiet and a bark and they treat them simultaneously uh because then the animal can learn that they get reinforced for both and it's not just the barking that gets reinforced it's being quiet at times it gets reinforced and then there's less of a tendency for them to want to offer one more than the other if you can find ways of teaching the teaching both behaviors at the same time i had a question sort of going back to what you're talking about in terms of um, remote reinforcement um you know with in terms of working with domesticated animals or wild animals in captivity where you do have contact with the animal and and you are directly involved in their training or direct source of reinforcement versus you know remote um, remote work where the animals don't really ever know you're a part of the process. Do you have a preference between those two or do you feel like one is easier than the other to, to get your outcome? No, I mean, I think certainly as a trainer, I think most of us who train love interacting with our animals. There's a certain joy and thrill that we get from interacting directly with the animals. So I certainly enjoy training that way. But, uh, you know, there's there's advantages to both. And, you know, and, and when I'm working with an animal that I'm going to be caring for for its mm -hmm. entire life, then I would love 
to make my presence reinforcing, make my presence something that the animal looks forward to so that I can, I can be a source of reinforcement as well. Um, while with animals that I don't want to do that for, uh, then the remote training works best. But even with animals that I care about and, 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 and have a relationship with, there are times when remote training can be really, really helpful. Uh, dogs that, that experience separation anxiety, often we can put together a plan that includes some remote training uh, that, that can happen when, the when as far as the dog is concerned, their owner has left the, left the room. Uh, for a zoo animal, oftentimes remote training is very helpful in getting an animal to learn how to play and interact with enrichment devices and enrichment items when you're not there. So I just think of it as one of the many tools available to us as trainers to be able to provide uh, uh, behavior uh, change possibilities, and you select the ones that make most sense at the time. It's not that I prefer remote training or I prefer the other. You know, usually with conservation work, remote training is done out of necessity, mm -hmm. and for a, for your pet dog at home, remote training isn't always necessary, and so. You have no issues with reinforcing the dog yourself, but, but both can be beneficial depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Makes sense. Perfect. Yeah. That absolutely makes sense. Um, we, we had one quick question about if you um, had any advice for just sort of the average person and how they can best get involved. Cause I know you get a lot of questions from probably trainers and non-trainers about like, Oh, how can I go help the elephants or how can I oh. help, you know, baby otters or whatever. And like, it's a journey. It's not really like you just go do it yeah. on your weekends. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's, so it's, 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 yeah, there's a lot of different approaches to getting involved. And I think you're right. I think it's, it's, it's not like knock on the door of this organization and you can now be out there helping, uh, with wildlife conservation. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, it's, it's been a long journey for me to get there. And one of the things I always recommend is first I start with, without usually asking, do you have a particular species that you're really fascinated with? How like, do you love pandas? Do you love elephants? Do you love whatever? And if so, there are lots of groups of wildlife groups that, 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 that work on those kinds of efforts. There's the world wildlife fund. Um, and, uh, there's, uh, uh, Earthwatch that does ecotourism. There is a, a variety of places where you can begin really learning about the conservation issues that face these particular animals. And then as you begin learning about them, you'll begin hearing about these different projects that are going on. And often these projects do need help. And often they, they look for volunteers and those volunteers either come from local volunteer efforts. They sometimes come through uh, Earthwatch programs. They come from a, a variety of different ways. And those first two steps don't get you involved actively in, in the training. They help make you more aware. They make you more conscious. They make you more knowledgeable about the things. And they make you more aware of the people that are doing projects. And you, you'd be surprised that in whatever region you're living, um, there are probably conservation projects going on. They may not involve training, but what that's because most people don't realize that training can be used for conservation. But, you know, if, you know, even in when I lived in Chicago and I was in downtown Chicago, and if I assumed that 
I could never leave the city. I always was in the city and I would think, well, what kind of conservation projects can I do there? The reality was that there were a peregrine falcon recovery programs and the peregrine falcons were nesting in buildings in the city. There was a huge zebra mussel problem in Lake Michigan right along the shore there with invasive species of zebra mussels coming in and clogging up and making a problem for everybody. There are a lot of things going on. And if you find out that there's a, a conservation project in your area, uh, that uh, interests you. Uh, sometimes it's doing citizen science and helping them count animals in your area. It's trying to photograph animals so that they can be identified. And, and early involvement usually means getting involved in a lot of the less exciting aspects of it, but becoming a true helper, getting to know the people who are leading those efforts. And you'd be surprised that as you become involved with that, you'll start hearing about this behavior problem or that behavior problem. And some idea will come to you and say, gosh, I wonder if they've ever thought about training this animal to do such and such. And, and you can approach and ask about that kind of thing. Um, and, and most often, most wildlife biologists don't think of training as their first course of action when coming to help wildlife. Um, but that's true everywhere you go. It's, it's just training is lower down in people's minds about what to think of first to, to deal with, with, to deal with behavioral problems, especially wild behavioral problems. Um, but it's really about keeping yourself as informed as possible and finding connections with those areas that interest you most, whether it's be with the conservation work that your local zoo does, or whether it be with a major conservation organization like the World Wildlife Fund. And those, you know, there's, you know, there's the, the, the Sandhill Crane Society. And then there's the, you know, there's every species of animal. If you're interested in reptiles, there are, dozens of organizations that do with reptiles with birds there are thousands of organizations that deal with birds and you become aware of the needs that are out there and as soon as you become aware of that you you you're and as, if you're a trainer you'll start seeing places where training would be helpful but you're not you're rarely going to see looking for trainers to help with this particular conservation project conservation training is a newer concept and although it's much more mainstream than it was when i started doing it it still is a thing that with most projects you have to go in and just even convince the wildlife biologists involved and the government agencies involved that that some kind of behavior modification plan could make a difference because uh, most of the time they're skeptical primarily because they've never heard of it. The advantage I have now is that now that we've done so many of these projects, I can show them this project, this project, that project, and they go, mm -hmm. oh, wow, I had no idea. There's still stuff butterflies? Well, I wonder if at, at times they they might not realize that they've used training in the past. Um, like I know some hair trap, um, contraptions are made to be really comfy to scratch on yeah. to help get the animals to donate their hair for dna analysis and it's like that's training oh, you just don't know you're doing yeah. it yeah i mean all any kind of a trap are usually are usually designed whether it's a trap to get a sample or a trap to catch an animal or a trap to whatever they're usually offering some kind of reinforcer to get the animal there uh mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and and you're 
And you're right, most people don't think of that as training, but often when I go into these organizations and start talking about it, when I start mentioning the different ways that they have already used training and the fact that I go in and explain that animals are designed to learn and adapt their behavior and they learn from their environment every single day of their lives. The question just is, are we as conservation biologists, are we as conservation managers going to use that to our advantage? Mm -hmm. Or are we just going to ignore that thing that's going on every day? And when they start, when you start sharing with them that that is happening all the time, mm -hmm. um, they become far more open to it. Sometimes I think it's the word training that just simply gets people off on the wrong on the wrong foot they think of training as training a dog your dog to do a <laughs> trick or what the mm -hmm. lion in the circus learned how to jump through a flaming ring and they don't and so you know it's really is it's about learning and it's a and and i don't avoid the word training because i'm very proud of what we can accomplish with training but sometimes in convincing people you have to realize help them realize that broader definition of behavior management so many parallels Absolutely. with dealing with you know, clients and their dogs in their homes where you're oh, like, absolutely. look at what's already happening. Are we going to rig that to our advantage or are we just going to continue to let it work against us? Exactly. So, yeah. It's, yeah just on a, it's just on a bigger scale when you start dealing with conservation issues, but it's the same sure. thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a lot harder to prevent, uh, inadvertent reinforcement or <laughs> whatever it is. Um, we're going to change gears a little bit and talk about working with um, detection dogs in particular. As our listeners probably know, I'm really passionate about using search dogs with conservation goals in mind. And I hope that listeners find this fascinating, even if it's not necessarily applicable to um, your daily life. Um, so one common problem with detection dogs, and this includes nose work competitors, is that the dogs are really only ever rewarded for finding their target. Um, so if an area is blank and doesn't have any target odor involved, the dogs don't really have a good way to deal with this in the way that we traditionally train a lot of scent work. Um, so Ken, can you talk to us a little bit about that all clear procedure you discussed in your book? Sure. You know, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting procedure. It's one that has been quite controversial in some circles. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that I developed the all clear designation out of a need. Um, in many of the law enforcement circles that I worked with 20 and 30 years ago, there were a lot of law enforcement canine handlers who were not really trainers. Oftentimes they were um, uh, good officers who, for whatever reason, often due to an injury or other thing that prevented them from doing normal field work, were assigned to the canine unit. And so, they didn't have training background or a really good training uh, um, knowledge. And so what I was seeing happen a lot is these dogs would go out on searches. And, you know, when you're a, an explosive detection dog in particular, and you're clearing stadiums and clearing shipments of cargo, you don't really come across bombs every day. And so there were periods of times when these less experienced handlers would take their dogs into a, into a, where the cargo has just been uh, brought in, the dog would search the entire building, not find anything, and the handler would then move to the next building and search and not find anything and move to the next building. And what I was seeing was these dogs becoming frustrated and becoming um, 
less eager to work, not doing, not mm-hmm. being motivated. They would start doing false alerts. It, there was just a lot of problems that were attached mm-hmm. to that. And so I realized when in our training world, when in normal training, do we ask a dog to do something, but there's not a, an answer that, but there, there isn't an answer for them. In other words, anytime you ask your dog to sit, there is a way he can get reinforced. You ask your dog Mm -hmm. to to retrieve. There is a way he can get reinforced. But when you ask a dog to find something that isn't there and don't give them an opportunity to earn any reinforcement despite the effort that they put into the search, it's understandable that their behavior would go downhill. And, Mm -hmm. And so I suggested that what if every search there is a correct answer? What you're asking is, is this odor present? Yes or no. If it's present, you alert on the odor. If it's not present, you give a different alert that says nothing is here. And we started implementing that. It was several uh, um, detection dog arenas, and it changed the world for them. It made their, their, their training so much better. As I have been involved in the detection world for a really long time, I still am very much in favor of this tool, but primarily I'm in favor of it with less experienced handlers, with with handlers who do not know how to read their dog's behavior. Because what I was finding is when I would come across a law enforcement agency where the law enforcement officer was a police officer or a law enforcement agent, but he was also a skilled trainer who had really learned about training and learned how to read his dog, he didn't necessarily do that search the entire uh uh, warehouse go on and search the next warehouse go on and search the next warehouse he would after a after a, a good search he would break from the search for a few minutes play with his dog reinforce his dog for making for having done the search and he was being very thoughtful about the way he made those decisions and so i think when i come across controversy where people say, I've had success and I don't need this. Well, then I say, well, great, then don't use it. You know, for me, it's people often misunderstand when I present a tool, when I say, here is a tool, whatever it is, you know, whether it's a a tool for dealing with unwanted behavior, um, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of ways of dealing with any particular situation one tool is just one option. You can use many different options and if you don't need it, but often what we would do is I would come into some of these law enforcement agencies. Um, There was a period of time when in some circles, um, explosive detection dogs were successfully finding explosives that were there 76% of the time. That seems like an okay percentage, but when you think about it, that means one in four bombs is missed. Well, I don't know if that's good. That's just, that's not such a good. That's, a, that's not such a good uh, uh, rating. And and so one of the things that I always would look at when people would have difficulty and and or say I don't need this tool, I would say, okay, what's your percentage of success? In other words, the, the thing about bomb sniffing dogs, unlike narcotic dogs, if you have a, if you miss a bomb, you will know it. You will know it when it goes off the next a couple hours later, and you will even know which dog mm. missed it. Mm. As, opposed yeah. to, as opposed to narcotics, you're at a checkpoint and, and sniffing 
cars for narcotics and your dog doesn't detect mm. narcotics, that car goes on. And mm -hmm. what you find historically is that the amount of heroin in this particular city is, keeps going up. And that's telling you that some dog is missing it somewhere, but you don't know when, you don't know who. There's no way mm -hmm. to pinpoint it to a specific dog. But with explosive detection, you're able to have pretty good statistics. And unless somebody's showing me a dog who is accurate 96% of the time or higher, then I would suggest that there's something that you should change in your program. Now, if you have a dog that's 93% successful, that's a really good dog. But wouldn't you yeah. like your dog to be like <laughs> as close to 100% as possible? Yeah. And so what I then do is I review a program is it may not be because they need an all clear signal. It may mean because they're not using positive reinforcement as effectively as they could, or they're using too many aversives, which causes the dog's enthusiasm for the search to go down. Or maybe they're, they're, they, they, they're having handling of odor in a poor way, which has caused a lot of things to be to to for them to get false alerts because it's not a false alert. They just didn't realize that it was there. There's all sorts of reasons that a search can go can go wrong, um, and it's not always about the all clear. But I I just have found in many many situations giving the dog that that option to say when I say go find it, you know here's this odor, go find it. You always have a correct answer because there's no place else in the training world that we give a dog a cue and there isn't an answer. It isn't, there is no, there's nothing, there's nothing there. Um, yeah. and by giving them that option to, 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 to always say no. And a lot of times people will say, well, won't that just cause the dog to just immediately say no and get reinforced? And the answer to that is no, uh, because part of what you do is you train your dog to do the search pattern that you need and it's required that they search the entire area well no dog is going to keep searching if they smell something if they smell something they will alert and so it's faster to alert when you find odor and if in the training process you are able to make sure that you know for sure what's there and what isn't and you've the dog will quickly learn not to lie um the 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 fact is that during training period, you always know the correct answer. So that dog begins to quickly learn, okay, I can't fool them. I'm always, and then they become a very reliable uh, detection dog. And so that's what the all clear signal is about. Um, it causes controversy in so many areas, but I, I don't use it for all trainers. I use it for trainers who need it, uh, for dogs who need it, dogs who are confused, dogs who, and, and for many trainers, even the people that have refused to use it, it's made them more aware of the fact that they aren't giving their dogs enough breaks. They're not reinforcing their dogs for, for, for the search, which they, which they should do. I mean, most dogs like to search. So you can, right. you know, you can get away with long searches without any other reinforcement other than the ability to go search. They really enjoy that process. So it is self reinforcing. Um, but, um, you, what we have to remember is, although it is self-reinforcing, the argument that 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 it's it's the job itself is reinforcing. While that is true to a certain extent, if you give a dog a choice, they're not always going to follow a specific pattern and search for that odor. They're going to be in interested in all sorts of other odors, and so you are still asking them to ignore 
the rabbit odor, ignore the whatever odor that's over there and stay focused on the task of looking for this particular odor. And so that is still a difficult task and it is requiring a lot of concentration on their part. And it requires some level of reinforcement once they've searched for 45 minutes or an hour. At some point, you should give them a break and reinforce them, even if they're enjoying it you want them to know that they're yeah. doing a good job. And so there, that was the purpose of the all clear signal. I think it really helped a lot of law enforcement agencies focus in on the fact that, oh, wow, I didn't even think about the fact that I was making my dog work an entire day and he didn't get his, his, his tennis ball reinforcer, uh, until the end of the day or at all, because he never found a bomb. Yeah. And it's like, that's, that's what causes dogs to start saying, well, I'll, I'll pretend there's a bomb here. I'll, 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 I'll get a, I'll, I'll find another way to, to get my reinforcer. It just helps keep them honest and truthful. Does that make sense? Do so, you understand how that works? It's yeah, kind of absolutely. a shift from like reinforcing the dog for the answer they give to reinforcing the dog for doing the job. Right. 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 Yeah. If they did the job yeah. well, you know, then, yeah. then you should reinforce them. And, and, yeah. and of course, yeah. there's a lot of, a lot of things to look for. I mean, you could, if you're not a very smart, observant trainer, you could end up reinforcing your dog for just making the motions of going up and down every row and not actually sniffing. The good news is most dogs like to use their nose, will use their nose. And so that isn't as likely, but you can pay attention to that. And you want to watch for that active sniffing, that active smelling, uh, that active flare of the nostrils that says, yes, they're actually doing the job. And, uh, but yes, you're, you're, you're really reinforcing them for doing the job because so often the job is about your is not finding anything you there's there's a lot of times when the yeah. search is is for not and but you still want to want to reinforce them yeah absolutely and that actually ties really nicely into the next question i was going to ask about which is you know maintaining enthusiasm for dogs that work in these really low fine environments um have we already kind of answered that or do you have anything else that you would add when these dogs are working in these yeah i mean yeah really low well, one of the there's 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 two things there's two aspects to that. One, yes, I think we've answered in the sense that if you reinforce the dog for the effort, now you want to make sure that that when you're training, if they put in a great effort, but you've put something there that's that's there, you don't reinforce them for missing it. It's not just the effort that matters. It's it's giving you the correct answer. It's not the participation you know? trophy. <laughs> it's it's the, but um um. There's also the aspect of, of just simply recognizing the, the need to maybe you've made your searches go on for too long or, or there are ways of breaking up the search and, and making it fun. And the other one is remembering that if you work in, a, in, a, in, a, in an environment where there are not very many fines, you know, like explosive detection, the, the important aspect there is to to plant stuff occasionally so that that the dog can make a find and can be reinforced for it so that they're really excited about it. You don't want to do it all the time because there are times when you just can't do that in, in the field or in certain situations. Um, but making sure that, you know, that you, you, you definitely want to do a number of searches where there aren't finds, but you want to make sure to reinforce that good effort. And you want to make sure that there are plenty of times when they do make finds. And sometimes it may be something that you planted there just so that the dog could have the excitement of finding something. 
Yeah. <laughs> the other thing too that happens is it's in the training process. You can get away with with uh, with um, not with not having an all clear cue, but it just means that during practice you have to have some sessions in which the dog doesn't find something, and that it doesn't mean he's failed, and you still have a, a good outcome. Um, uh, one of the problems that happens in search and rescue is rarely do search and rescue trainers practice with no find. They all almost always put something out there for the for the person for the dog to find. But in real searches, if you're not sure where the person is, it, they may not find the person. And you don't want the dog to give up, so you want to help them understand that there isn't always something there. You're still going to reinforce them for the effort, but it's not going to necessarily be at a specific time. And, and, and I think there's a lot of strategies to making it more successful. Yeah, definitely. So you're also really focused overall on making sure that, you know, our learner has all of their needs met before starting training and as part of training. So what are some trends, if any, that you see relating to this in working dogs in particular, but also sport dogs? And, you know, do you have any thoughts or things that you'd like to see with working dog welfare to help with working dog success? Well, I think part of that starts with with having the right philosophy about dog well-being. You know, it's it's coming into it with the, the mindset that the animal comes first, that the dog's welfare comes first, the dog's health comes first, the dog's safety comes first. Um, I, I've had pushback against that. It sounds really easy to say, and well, of course, we all want that. But what you find with working dogs is there is, there does become the pressure that this dog has a job to do. And, and once they're doing that job, there's this desire to keep pushing them forward. But um, I have found that if you really put the dogs first, you end up with a happier, healthier dog who will then work harder and actually be a much more successful dog uh, than the dog that is forced to keep going out even when they don't want to. And, and I think that it, for me, it's a mind shift of how you approach training. And it's important to me that we look at, I always like to divide the reasons we train animals into primary and secondary reasons. And for me, primary reasons are things that directly benefit that individual dog, you know, like <laughs> mental stimulation, physical, physical exercise, mm -hmm. uh, medical behaviors. Those are primary reasons to train. And they always have to come first before secondary reasons. And when I think of secondary reasons, I think of conservation. I think of entertainment. I think of sport. I think of work. But the problem is that, you know, when I, I you know, I, I always share my philosophy of training when I go in to consult. And inevitably, when you go into a working dog environment and you say the primary reasons are these things and the secondary reasons are work and so forth, they're, the, immediately the, the directors, the person in charge, the sergeant in charge of that canine unit says, whoa, whoa, Ken, no, work is the primary reason. Uh, we train. And I have to say, no, it can't be that. You can't look at it that way. I realize that if you're in a guide dog school and if you're in a, a, a canine handler in a law enforcement agency, the work is the reason that the police department exists. It's the reason the guide dog 
organization exists, but it isn't the primary role of the trainer. The primary role of the trainer is to look after the welfare of the animal. And what I have found is that when you put that welfare first, when you put the health first, when you put the safety first, you end up having a healthier, happier animal. And those animals end up working with greater enthusiasm. They can work longer hours and it ends up affecting the work. But it only works that way when you put the welfare first. And so it's really about shifting the paradigm. And at first, it's scary. Every agency, every organization that I've worked with, when I've said, no, don't put the work as your primary goal, put the welfare as your primary goal when the work is important, but it's secondary. And as soon as they do that, they've seen the quality of the work go up immeasurably. Um, and it, it seems counterintuitive, but but, and it, but a lot of that has to do with making sure that you set up a positive working, a positive working environment. You know, you know, you make work fun, you make it reinforcing, then your animal is eager to do the job because they're being so reinforced for it. They're having so much fun, they're healthy, and they're in a good mental place. You end up getting far better performance. And we're seeing that in a lot of these organizations that have switched to positive reinforcement. We're seeing the data actually show that they're beginning to see uh with guide dogs that are being trained with positive reinforcement they're they're seeing that their working life is extended more than a year you know the the average working life is like a year longer because they're not as stressed we're finding with uh explosive detection dogs that their accuracy rating is 98 percent or higher because of the fact that they are so enjoying the work and so it's it's really it, it's really worthwhile looking at that and seeing the difference that it makes in the productivity uh, as well as the health. And I think that's what's the, the productivity, the work productivity literally goes up when you start focusing on the health and welfare. And so I think they go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. This is what I'm literally hoping to study in graduate school starting this fall. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, I'm excited to hear more about it. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for answering. So I think we're going to do um, a little bit of a lightning round with three questions from our patron, Caroline. Um, so Ursa, do you want to go ahead and ask us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our first question from Caroline is, what is life at the ranch like? <laughs> so who is on full time? Do you have daily staff? Is it just you feeding all the critters or no, what's it like no. out there? <laughs> life on the ranch is a lot of fun. I enjoy it here. Uh, the ranch, we've got 36 animals living here at the ranch. We have dogs, we have alpacas, we have miniature donkeys, we have goats. And, um, uh, it's not just me. Um, I, I, I live here on the ranch. This is my home as well as uh, the ranch is part of the Karen Pryor National Training Center. Um, uh, I co-manage the, the ranch along with my wife. We have a full-time uh, uh, ranch hand that, that lives on the property. Uh, and that that's all that we really need for most of the day-to-day -day care when we have courses at the ranch, uh, we bring a couple of additional uh, staff on to work with the students and to help with uh, the care of the animals during during those weeks. Uh, but uh, but it's great. We're right here at the foothills of Mount Rainier. It's literally in our backyard. We see it every day, and uh, uh, it's a it's a great place to live and it's a fun place to work. And I love I love working with the students when they come out. Once the pandemic is over, we're hoping uh. to be open again in june uh this summer for uh for students to take to start taking courses again 
Fantastic. Can I ask a follow-up question? So as someone who grew up on a farm and then my husband and I had our own farm for a while and I, of course, had to train all of the different animals that we ever had on our farm. Um, What's your favorite species on the farm to work with? That's a great question. Um, I think my answer to that question is the animal that's in front of me at the time. You know, the, the reality is, uh, you know, it's it's always when you're working on a project, you know, as you're working on a project with an alpaca, you're going, wow, this is cool. This is really the best. And and at that moment, that, that alpaca is your favorite animal. And then you go off and do something with a goat. And you go, oh, no, no, this is my favorite. And then you get back in the house and do something with your dog. And you go, oh, no, no, this is my favorite. It, it's really difficult to pick a favorite. I think... Um, I think it's 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 for me the joy is in training and of course as you build relationships with animals that makes the pleasure of working with any animal a lot more fun and so i think often you will find that people will gravitate toward animals that they have a great relationship with and so mm-hmm. um and that that comes from spending more time with them and training with them more so i don't have I'm, a favorite i'm so validated to hear you say that because my experience was like I started training my horse and I was like, mind blown. This is so cool. And then we got a pig and I started training with her and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then like started working with our turkeys and I was like, oh my gosh, like each one, it was like, there was just something so cool and different and unique about it. Yeah, it is. And I, I think it's, it's, it's like a, someone asking a parent, who's your favorite kid? <laughs> well, you may have one, but you're not but you don't say it. anybody. Um, I also think it's interesting because when I used to work at the aquarium in Chicago, my answer would be, people always ask, what's your favorite? And I would say, oh, they're all the same. I like them all. And then my staff would say, that's not true. We can tell you who your favorites are. And, and they would point out that, that I liked the certain, there were certain species of animals and it, and, 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 and I worked with those animals a lot. I was always working with them. And, 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 uh, but usually it was because I had a relationship with those animals and I picked those animals to work with because they were easy to work on my schedule. They were easy to, to separate out and work with. And so, and then once you develop that relationship with that animal, then of course mm-hmm. it becomes an animal that you want to work with a lot. But, but I truly do enjoy the different types of challenges that different species presents you and, and and to me it makes me a better trainer keeps me on my toes keeps me from just sitting back and going oh, okay i know what to do no you don't always know what to do. <laughs> awesome all right our next question was um which animals get into the cheekiest shenanigans on the ranch <laughs> the cheekiest shenanigans the, the verbatim question the cheekiest okay. shenanigans <laughs> i would have to say that, that more than likely it's it, it's the goats as far as the animals that we have here the, they are the animals that present us with the biggest challenges as far as getting in trouble doing something they're not supposed to be doing um um and part of that is 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 that their flexibility. They're they're able to jump over fences. They're able they they eat anything. And so you just have to be. It's about managing them <laughs> properly. Uh, any animal can can get into trouble, I suppose. But uh, but you just have to be extra alert with the goats because they are always looking for attention. They're always looking for something to get into. And so they 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 probably keep us the most on our toes from that perspective. <laughs> uh, I, as a former goat owner, I, I would agree with that as well. 
Yeah, I'm not shocked. <laughs> no, no. Um, Caroline also asked what your favorite species to train was. I, I jumped ahead and I didn't realize that question was kind of tacked on there at the end. So we've, we've heard that one, but, um, but I, will, I can oh, add on to that. I can add on to that by simply saying that, that, you know how sometimes you have a circle of friends that are like your, your best friends and, 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 and you may, and someone, if someone were to say, who's your really best friend? Well, there may be, a, there may be a person that is, but it's also true that it might be that one friend is somebody who you love to go out and have a drink with. Well, mm -hmm. this is a, the other friend is someone you'd like to do uh, jogging with or like to go hiking with. And this particular friend, you really get off on going to the movies together because you have these great discussions and you find that different friends serve different needs. Mm -hmm. And I find that when training animals, that there are different animals that serve different needs that have to challenge me in different ways. And so, um, you know, there are some animals that really love tactile reinforcement. And so when I'm in the mood to just pet and cuddle, then those animals are the ones that are going to be my favorite to train in that moment. But then there are others that, 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 that are good at doing other things. And so you kind of find that they're they're you enjoy working with them for different reasons that, that that aren't necessarily equal they're just they're different and 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 you can find joy for a variety of different reasons with a lot of different species and then when you want to party you go yeah, see the that makes sense. <laughs> that's right <laughs> <laughs> awesome well so where can people find you and the work you do online Oh, excellent question. There's a couple of places. Uh, on uh, the Karen Pryor Clicker Training website is a great place to find what I'm doing online, and that's clickertraining.com. And if people want to follow me, I'm not really big in social media except on Instagram and Twitter. And, and uh, my Instagram uh, is Ken underscore Ramirez underscore KPCT. And for my Twitter, uh, my Twitter is at Ken KPCT. Uh, and, and I encourage people to follow me i post almost daily and you can usually see what what i'm doing with the animals or you can see when i'm doing a conservation project uh, every once in a while i post training content i just mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't have any strict way of handling my social media but i do it post almost daily so <laughs> yes it's fun i've been following you for a while oh, and i don't have a twitter but uh instagram for sure all right. So before you guys go, um, we will link to everything that Ken mentioned in um, in the show notes. So you can check those out at canineconvos.com. That's canine all spelled out. Um, make sure you subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. And please go ahead and leave us some reviews. We find those highly reinforcing. <laughs> um, you can support, support the podcast at patreon.com for as little as three bucks a month. You can submit questions to us for each episode. Um, and you can always follow us on social media as well. Um, so thanks for listening, guys. <laughs>